welcome everybody to our second edition of the Coffee Breakdown podcast. Uh, our objective is to strengthen the connections between the scientific world and the general technical public. And our belief is that the expression of the more creative and human side is crucial in achieving that, that connection. Um, and part of that is the good communication skills of the scientists themselves. And we're trying to put that forward through this medium. Now, keep in mind, it's a learning process, not just for those who are listening, but also for myself and the guests that are involved in this podcast. So please keep that in mind. Um, and today, our guest is Ralph Mackenbach. He's a PhD student here at the University of Eindhoven, working on plasma physics and fusion research, specifically along the lines of these funky looking machines called stellarators. So Ralph, if you would not mind, first, welcome uh, to the podcast and thank yeah. you for being here. Um, would you like to explain a little bit about your work and uh, how cool it is? Uh, absolutely, of course. Um, uh, I've watched the first episode as well, so I fear there's always going to be a bit of, what do you call it, crosstalk and overlap between different people talking about fusion, but uh, so be it. I'll, uh, I'll do the full story. Um, so as most, as some people will maybe remember from uh, the previous uh, podcast episode is, if you want to make something fuse, so bring atoms together, you need to make it very hot. Um, and for the stuff we tend to do, it's about 150 million degrees Celsius at the top of my head. I could be wrong by a few million, but who cares when you're at 150 million, right? Um, Order of magnitude. <laughs> uh, it's funny, right? Because we do tend to talk in the science um, about this, like, oh, we're, we're, we're in the right ballpark. but. Every time I tend to explain to my friends like, oh, it's 150 million degrees uh, Celsius. That's quite, a, that's quite a bomb to drop in terms of that ridiculous amount if you truly think about it. Anyhow, uh, main point being, if you heat something to 150 million degrees Celsius, it's not gonna be a solid anymore. It's also not gonna be a liquid. It's not even a gas. It's uh, something called a plasma. And uh, the, the model or the way people tend to explain it is, um, Usually things consist of atoms, which are little nuclei with electrons orbiting around it, kind of like a little solar system, which is not entirely correct, but good enough for our intents and purposes. Um, if you heat it up enough, then these become separate, and now you have a soup of charged particles buzzing around. Um, and you need to somehow hold on to this soup of charged particles of 150 million degrees Celsius um, in some manner to make fusion work. So the question is how, how do you keep something that's 150 million degrees Celsius in a box or in a bottle somewhere? And uh, the answer from uh, physics is magnets because that's how we, uh, <laughs> we often uh, solve these problems. Magnets solve everything, right? <laughs> yes, how do they work? We don't know, we're just magnets. No. <laughs> We, we, of course, do understand why, and uh, we have a good idea. Um, well, magnets are indeed the solution, and um, you, you really don't need that much know-how to kind of get an intuition on uh, why they are the solution. Like, for, uh, for me, I just need to think back to my high school math, where we'd draw, like, the trajectory of a 
uh, charged particle in a magnetic field and you would do something like, okay, the magnetic field is pointing in the paper and then you would have a charged particle flying around one of these magnetic field lines. Um, and that's really all you need to know. Charged particles tend to uh, fly around magnetic field lines and the stronger the magnetic field is, the more closely it follows that magnetic field line. Um, so you, they're kind of like, um, what would you call it? Beads on a necklace, right? These charged particles stick like beads on a necklace. Okay, so that's how you can uh, make sure that it sticks to something. You can confine it in space, um, but you don't want these particles to fly off at either end, right? So if you make the a necklace then bites in its own tail, voila, now uh, it'll just buzz around this circle uh, for, uh, for some time. Um, of course, one magnetic field line is not enough. You need a volume of plasma. And that brings us almost to the first concept called the tokamak, um, which is a great jumping point to go to stellarators. Um, but I'm sure you've heard this uh, story a million times as well, uh, Aaron. But I, I do think it's uh, it's important to kind of go through that uh, loop of uh, building up, building it up, because it really isn't, in essence, that complicated. It's just a lot of things on top of each other, which makes it hard. Well, yes, exactly. And I think that this is a good point to sort of tie back also to Michaela's discussion of the particle transport, right? So if we have these magnetic fields that are confining plasmas, as you say, why would we expect the particles to ever leave, right? Yes. So there are many mechanisms for that. Maybe you have some insights there, right? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. So I, I painted a very, um, uh, what would you call it, a rough picture of what's happening. Namely, I said that these particles stick to uh, magnetic field lines like beads on a necklace. Um, that's not entirely true, of course, because they do have this little orbit they make around magnetic field lines. And uh, it so turns out that while it's doing this orbit, it's not only feeling the effects from this one magnetic field, but also the ones around it. And, and because of uh, a multitude of effects, which is also interesting to go into detail on, but I don't think it's very enlightening, uh, then they don't really stick to one magnetic field line anymore per se, but they tend to drift uh, and they can drift towards the wall of your reactor. And that's a problem. And there is a solution uh, here. Um, namely, I talked about this necklace uh, having to take the long way around. So it, it walks uh, uh, around the donuts, like um, what do you call it? The top of the donut, the, the glaze, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> in Dutch, but I don't know what the English term is. Oh yeah, the glazing. Yeah, glazing. Okay. Yeah, yes. The glazing. Yeah. So the glazing takes the long path around. Like I uh, like sketched the rough picture uh, of what these magnetic field lines do. That's not enough. Then you have these drifts, and everything becomes unstable, and you particles fly out towards the wall. Uh, you also need to take the short path around the donut. So chunky donut. Uh, this is the long path. This is the short path. So if you add those two components up, short path plus long path, you get some kind of helical path around this donut, some kind of weird twisty path. Um, and there's two ways to achieve this. This is called a rotational transform because we like to give fancy names to things, but it's just twisty fields. If you ever hear rotational transform or safety factor even, think twisty. Um, so, 
the way, uh, one way to achieve this is, again, think really hard about your high school physics. If you have a current uh, somewhere, right-hand rule, then there is a magnetic field going around it. So if you can drive a current through this donut, um, with all these magnetic field lines going about, you can also have a component that's looping that way around. You add up these two terms, the long way around and the short turn around, and you have uh, this windy factor now. Uh, so that's one way of achieving it, but, and this is, uh, this is where we slowly start to make a distinction between tokamaks, which um, I'm a big tokamak fan, by the way. There's that's surprising to hear, actually, <laughs> personally, but. I'm, I am a big fan, but I'm a bigger fan of the Stellar Ranger. There, okay, okay, now it all, now it all ties together. <laughs> <laughs> so you, would you care to explain a bit about the Stellar Rangers that, that you're working with? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. You're getting uh, there. Okay, yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Yes, yeah. it's, it's a long story. It's, uh, I've often told this to friends as well, uh, who, who are not in the field, uh, or even not in the technical field, um, and uh, it, it always takes about fifteen minutes. Let me uh, turn off my notifications real quick, otherwise uh, you might hear blinks and beeps all through the podcast, which is not great. Um, so we talked about this twisting of the magnetic field lines and one way you can achieve it is by passing through a current uh, through this plasma. Um, and you need mega amps and anyone who's done home appliances knows that mega amperes is a ridiculous amount. It's, it's out of this world. Um, and it, that does come with its problems, its own set of problems. That amount of current, uh, that massive amount of current, that's the word I'm looking for, is just a massive bath of energy and uh, can lead to instabilities. Um, this is colloquially called a disruption when something like that happens. Um, I'm of course kind of generalizing here, not being very precise with my words, but I think that's fine. Um, when that happens, uh, you may lose control of your plasma. The good thing about a fusion reactor is you won't have a meltdown like uh, Fukushima or Chernobyl but you might lose your reactor, which was uh, $20 billion to build. So that's still, that's still a problem, right? Yeah, it's generally not desired, let's put it yeah. that way. <laughs> if I'd lose 20 billion in a day, I'd be very sad, so. Yeah, uh, an, an understatement of the century kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's a good thing I'm not Warren Buffett then, is that? <laughs> He just uh, throw, he just throw that right. Okay. Yeah, there just, you go. <laughs> yeah. Twenty billion for you. Twenty billion for you. No, either way. Yes, continue. <laughs> That's one problem. There's a second problem, which is you need to drive this current somehow. That does it doesn't come out of thin air. Um, and you generally do this uh, inductively, and inductive means you need a changing magnetic field to drive the current. That's probably also ringing some high school physics bells for some people. Uh, if you don't remember it, take my word for it. You need a changing magnetic field and you'll drive a current. Uh, but you cannot change that field indefinitely. You'd need to ramp it up. And at some point you're gonna hit limits because uh, that field is being produced somewhere specifically by currents. And uh, at some point you're uh, hitting material constraints or whatever kinds of constraints really. So you need to flip it on and off every now and then. So like on average, you only get half the amount of power uh, because it's on half of the time and it's off half of the time. 
So those are two problems uh, which tokamaks have to deal with. And of course, lots of work is being done on this um, with driving that current in non-inductive methods and also making sure these massive disruptions don't happen. But what if you would just get rid of this current altogether? Because remember, we needed it to twist these magnetic field lines around. And this is where my necklace comes in. So give me that. One. Nice. A visual aid always helps, I feel, which uh, maybe isn't the best thing to say in a podcast, which is <laughs> a medium which is traditionally uh, only heard. But still, for you wonderful viewers, I can give you a, an image. Perfect, um, yeah. It also turns out you can make uh, this uh, magnetic field line take a helical path, this twisty path, by um, allowing your plasma to have a very funky, weird uh, shape with some kind of um, twist in it. So this is a real, this is what the plasma looks like in a real reactor. It's called Wendelstein 7X. Uh, it's in Germany and it's about 200 times as large as the thing I'm showing you here, which would not make a great necklace. Where? Well, uh, or you could be really, really strong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be good for my, for my neck muscles, but I'm not sure that's something I want to achieve. <laughs> Fair enough. Being but, buff only here, that's not, that's not great. No, no, then you're just all neck, right? That's just <laughs> not an attractive. Uh, neck day, bro. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's a cool necklace, though, just uh, getting a bit off topic here. But where'd you, where'd you get it made? Or was it gifted to you? Or uh, No, so I had these, uh, this comes out of a simulation where uh, really what you're looking at is... Um, if you're following one of the these magnetic field lines around, they slowly start to fill a surface. And this is one of these surfaces uh, in, uh, in Wendelstein 7X. And I had a simulation lying about of this uh, and you can kind of easily export it to some kind of 3D formats and then you send it to your local 3D printer company and uh, you say, I want this, I want it now. Wow, that's cool though, that is cool. Same can be done for to your favorite tokamak or your favorite whatever, as long as it's a 3D shape. And uh, also, I can also just go buy a donut, right? And it would be the same <laughs> <laughs> for a tokamak, at least. <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend you wearing a real donut around your neck, is that it does have an expiration date. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> also, summer wasps. I would, yeah, not great. Not a great, not a great idea. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, okay, the main point being, uh, if you allow it to have this funky shape, you can achieve the same thing. Uh, but now you run into a new problem. Namely, there's a multitude, uh, a multitude is an understatement, a vast, vast sea of um, possible shapes, which you could choose from. And the question is, what's the best one? And in the end, you'd want something like um, uh, a shape that minimizes the unit cost of electricity whilst still working as a plant, as a power plant, right? Well, we're not at the point yet where we can say we have a working accelerator. So right now we're working on that second part, a working power plant. Um, and then I'll slowly pivot to my uh, research uh, unless, uh, uh, there's a fun sidebar you want to make here before. No, absolutely. It, it's it's uh, this is the main point that we're trying to get to a showcase of what you do. I'm driving the point home. Okay. Um, so 
in these reactors, you generally don't want the heat to leak out too quickly. Um, and the reason is quite intuitive. If it leaks out too quickly, you'd have to pump in a lot more energy to keep it at that high temperature, right? Um, and uh, so if you can make it hold on to the heat better, it's easier to make all of this work. And there's really three channels of heat loss in one of these devices, uh, kind of broadly speaking. They overlap a bit, of course, but uh, let's, let's be frank. Let's just make three, uh, three uh, channels here. The first one is uh, called diffuse transport. Uh, and I like to make an analogy here. Uh, and the analogy is get a glass of water and get uh, a drop of ink. And you just let the ink drop into the water. And you'd slowly see this ink uh, diffuse outwards. Um, there's diffusive transport of the ink in the glass of water. And something entirely similar happens, happens here as well. The center of this device tends to be very hot. Uh, and that heat is slowly diffuse, diffusing outwards towards the edges. So that's called diffusive transport. And we have quite a good grasp on how that works. Um, then you have something called neoclassical transport, because we like to give fancy names to things. So, uh, But it's kind of an um, umbrella term. I'm not sure if that's the right uh, uh, word for it. So uh, it, it kind of aggregates a bunch of different effects and all puts it under one uh, uh, dome, let's say. Uh, what neoclassical transport entails is, well, because this magnetic field line is curved, it's not an easy straight line, you get all kinds of weird curvature effects, like similar to you feel curvature effects when you make a turn in the road, right? You get pushed to one side. Um, and these curvature effects, uh, they matter for the transport. So some, some new effects come into play and they enhance the transport. Um, and we also have quite a good grasp on that nowadays. Uh, fun. That's, a pretty, that's a pretty good analogy, if I have to say myself. Sorry oh. to interject, but like, oh, no, I've never heard of it that way. Actually, that's that's nice. I'm going to keep that one. It does skip over some of the details, of course, but I, I often think these details, they're important, of course, when you're in the field and you do need to really study them uh, if you want to um, contribute. But uh, to get the gist of, across of what we're trying to do, I think this paints the right picture. But of Absolutely. course, every analogy breaks down somewhere. You, you need to be very aware of where the, the boundaries of that analogy are so that if people ask questions, you can be like, uh, yeah, so this is where uh, it all goes to hell. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if, if they're interested in that level, then we are definitely looking oh, to yeah. have them join our... <laughs> join our cause right so they will yeah. learn it <laughs> yes exactly then then we'll be like come aboard have have fun with us exactly 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 um, and so there's the third part of uh, third part. yes yeah and uh, let's get that uh, uh analogous gla glass of water uh, back again now grab yourself a spoon uh, stir the water first now drop the ink uh, into it and you'd see this ink gets um, um like stretched uh, by all these different vortices and it um, uh, gets transported across this entire glass of water much faster. That's what we would colloquially call turbulent transport. And turbulence, that's, that's hard. That's just a very hard thing to get a grasp on. And that's the thing we don't really understand yet. So that's 
in a nutshell, what I'm trying to do is um, what shape of reactor, so accelerator, is best to have as little turbulent transport as possible. Um, oh, I did want to make a little side remark. So this W7X, Wendelstein 7X reactor, has been optimized for uh, neoclassical transport. So this, all these curvature effects. And indeed, from all the uh, different uh, measurements that have been made, it seems that the dominant uh, mode of transport is turbulence in this thing. And neoclassics doesn't really matter all that much uh, anymore. But uh, that being said, turbulence is dominant and quite uh, pervasive. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it really, uh, it gets a lot of the heat out of the reactor quite quickly. Um, so if we could get good grips on that, that would be great. Um, yeah, I hope that kind of paints a, click, uh, a picture of on what island I'm working on. That doesn't really tell me the specifics of how I handle this question, but uh, that is the, the field. So from what I understand, uh, is your work is primarily on trying to then optimize this, this twisted design. But one question is, are you, when you do the optimization, I I suppose now you want to optimize for turbulence because that's the new dominant dominating transport mechanism. Yeah. But is there a counterbalance between the neoclassical and the turbulence that you found? You know, this, this is a great question. So uh, yeah, let me get a bit more into detail on how this specifically works. So my work consists of two parts. Um, no, let me tell you something else first. Um, sure. Um, a great question people often ask is, okay, so um, how do you know turbulence is dominant and uh, can you can you even model such a thing then if it's so complicated and the answer is yes we can we know like the underlying equations of this and you can throw them on a computer and they'll solve these equations and indeed we see all these different turbulent effects come into play um, but there's a very big but here those uh, computations, they are very expensive. Uh, the, so they're about a million CPU hours. If that, I don't know if anybody uh, here know, has like a rough estimate of what that means, but on your laptop, you would have to wait roughly a million years before it's done with its simulation. A so, million hours. Uh, sorry, yeah, a million hours. <laughs> I mean, Not a million years. A million <laughs> years and a million hours feels about the same when you're talking about <laughs> those numbers, right? <laughs> Close enough. You know, yeah, yeah. Order fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you'd have to wait a million hours on your laptop. So obviously, obviously we don't do this on our laptops. We use supercomputers. Um, and these simulations have been done. It's just if you want to use an optimization, you'd have to do loads of these runs. Uh, another factors of hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands. And then it all adds up and it becomes impossible to do this um, in like some optimization routine. Cause that's ideally what you want. You'd want to solve the real equations, see what happens and then twist the knobs, see what happens again, keep twisting the knobs until you have some fine, uh, some optimal shape for turbulence. That's just impossible. So we need to get a better grasp on turbulence in a way that's feasible. And with feasible, I mean that you can uh, actually compute it. Um, and it's been a long, uh, there's been a long history in the field of trying to find different turbulence proxies, which is kind of like, okay, um, 
we don't really know what the turbulence is like, but it's kind of like this. Let's put in a square here, and uh, maybe this uh, thing will be there. And uh, oh, this equation seems to work quite well. Let's use that as a stand-in for this very hard computation. And we, we have made quite significant uh, strides uh, with this method, but not significant enough. We're not to that point yet. So uh, it's really a twofold question. The first is fundamental modeling of turbulence. You need to understand how turbulence works. And the second is implementing this measure in some optimization. And that second part is really uh, easier, I'd say, because most of these codes are ready. You just need to code up a little extra part of it, say, this is the measure we want to use now. Let it run, see what comes out of it, check if it indeed works or if it doesn't work. But the real, the real beef <laughs> comes in in this modeling. What, what is the turbulence like in some system? Uh, and I'd say that's most of my work, really fundamental modeling in, of plasma physics turbulence which I really like. So that's a good thing for me. <laughs> so what you say, when you say modeling in this sense, is it modeling in terms of like, here are some fundamental equations, we put in some inputs, and then it turns out, you know, in time results? Or do you mean more sort of looking at results and coming up with some sort of trend or some sort of other function to explain that trend, which is sort of like reduced modeling in some sense, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So which aspect is primarily in your, in your work? I, uh, my work is uh, very much on the fundamental side. So from equations to uh, uh, outputs, uh, instead of we have data and uh, see, what ha see what we can fit on it. Uh, but of course, there's lots of interplay between these two fields. They're not quite as, there's not a significant boundary between them. Um, but mine, yeah, does tend to be on the very theoretical side. Yeah, I think it'd be good to, uh, talk about the specifics of what I do precisely, because I think it will uh, sketch the right picture. Um, so we need to understand turbulence in a plasma. Uh, so we need some kind of equations describing the plasma, uh, and you need some assumptions. And uh, typically what uh, we do is we use distribution function theory. Now, if anybody is uh, very scared of those words, don't be. <laughs> There's no need, because um, a distribution function is not really too complex of a thing. It's just give me a location and give me a velocity. So a location in the reactor and give me a velocity, I don't know, 10 meters per second. And then I'll tell you, oh, there are five particles living at that position with that velocity. And the distribution function will tell you that for every position and every velocity. It's a function of those inputs. Um, and we have uh, fundamental equations describing how the distribution function, so that thing that describes all these different particles in the plasma, how that evolves over time. And that tells us exactly what the plasma is doing as it's uh, evolving. Um, okay, uh, so that's kind of the framework we're working in. And this has been very well verified that the plasma upholds these equations to a very good degree. Um, you can kind of, uh, think about uh, what what these equations do. What, what it does is it takes a first distribution function, an initial one, and then it poops out a bunch of other ones, an entire set of distribution functions, which are accessible in some sense by this equation. So a good example of one that isn't accessible is I start out with a bunch of particles and in uh, 
a very small time, I don't know, let's say a nanosecond, they are all gone all of a sudden, right? That doesn't happen. <laughs> we don't have particles popping in or out of existence <laughs> in our equations. I, maybe there's a quantum physicist watching who gets angry. But... <laughs> yeah, not that's we'll, not... We'll, we'll, we'll let them leave something in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's something that can't happen. There's only a, a uh, restricted amount of distribution functions it can become. You can also assign an energy to each distribution function. And what that is, is just the sum of the energy of all the particles in the system. So you just take one and see, oh, this is energy five in some units. This one has 10. Okay, add them all up, see what comes out of it. Okay, then you can ask an interesting question. Let's make a table of all these different distribution functions uh, on one side and let's put the energy on the other side. You know where you started, that had some energy and there's one with the lowest energy uh, associated with it, uh, which is not zero in our equation. That's an important note to make. And why it isn't zero is because exactly because of what I said that you cannot become zero, like no particles all of a the sudden. There's a constraint on this set of this of the distribution functions. If I'm getting too uh, technical or woozy, intervene, please. <laughs> no worries. I, I'm still uh, enjoying still the board? discussion, still, still following, so. Fantastic. Um, so you have a point where you start, which had an energy associated with it, and a lowest energy. There's a difference between these two. Uh, and that's what we call available energy. And it's literally what uh, it, yeah, what that means is literally what it means. It's the energy that is available to the plasma to drive instabilities. And we expect to drive turbulence. Um, so my work is mostly on uh, calculating this available energy in different configurations, because it turns out these equations are very hard. But this concept of available energy is kind of like, uh, it, it helps us see through this massive maze. Um, and it's turning out, you'd have to be very careful, of course, uh, as I've learned throughout my research as well so far, you'd have to, yeah. It, you, it's turning out to be very uh, useful as a measure. Um, so to uh, bring that point back to this optimization, instead of calculating the turbulence, you would now calculate the available energy and try to minimize that. Um, so I hope that paints a picture of- that's, uh, that's it. So I would like to ask a few questions about the method oh, because absolutely, it seems, it seems very interesting that you would want to have, so you calculate this ground state, which is yes. uh, effectively the resting position. Like if it was in that state, there's just no other, <clears throat> easier yeah. state for it to be in, so it stays yeah, there. Nothing is happening if it's in the ground state, then it's just a very boring plasma, which is what we'd like. Right. <laughs> we want so, it to be boring. Well, indeed, exactly, because we wanted to keep doing the same thing over and over and over to yeah. infinity, right? So indeed, it, it, exciting plasmas are sort of troublesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just like kids, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I'm not there yet, but uh, let me report back in 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, people, people, let's say. People, yes. <laughs> exciting people tend to be troublesome. Um, <laughs> but in that sense, if you calculate uh, the available energy, so how different your current state is from that ground state, 
Yes. Um, let's assume that you know both of them, the energy is available in both of them. Wouldn't the ground state simply be no plasma? Like, I mean, how, did, how would you ever have a ground state that is not just nothing? Excellent right? question. And this, this kind of hinges on uh, your assumption of what are the fundamental equations describing this plasma? Um, and we assume something called the Vlasov equation for anyone who wants to uh, Google it, Wikipedia it. Uh, and what the Vlasov equation assumes is that this distribution function is not affected by um, what we call sources or sinks. Sources are um, um, sources of particles or energy and sinks are sinks of particles and energies, quite intuitive names. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of, it, it's only evolving by um, itself, let's say. It's only feeling the effect of uh, its own thing and not external inputs uh, pushing and shoving it around. And it's a great question to ask, how relevant is that to a plasma? It turns out that this philosophy equation can be really quite relevant. Uh, and that has something to do that when you're at a 150 million degrees, uh, you don't feel much uh, of particles which are moving much slower. Um, you only feel uh, much effects of other particles which are in 150 million degrees. And even those, are, uh, those effects are really small. Um, but yeah, in the end, uh, a real model does have these sources and sinks because there's fusion happening, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a source of energy which is uh, uh, driving this uh, 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 reactor and also keeping this plasma there. Um, but paradoxically, this equation with no sources and sinks turns out to model it quite well, really, uh, yeah, really quite well. Okay, okay. So then, so then if you remove the sources and sinks of, of energy in this in this thing, you can sort of tack them on later. So you compute your ground state and then that modifies no, they're, based they're on- they're not tacked on. They're, oh, they're, they're never tacked on. We just never tacked keep, on. Them we keep them zero. And with this equation, we can uh, get uh, quite far. Okay. Um, well, the, the question still remains that, well, isn't your ground state simply going to be flat, like a, no plasma effectively, or at least a very uniform low level of plasma? Yeah, so great question again. Um, if you have no sources and sinks, then uh, these particles cannot all of a sudden leave the system, right? Because that'd be a sink of particles. Ah, okay, okay. So, so even, even the edge, let's say quote unquote edge of the plasma, um, is not a sink, so nothing, you, it's a very, it's really a closed system. Yes, it's ex exactly, that's the right word, it's a closed mm. system. And that, that puts constraints on these uh, distribution functions, and those constraints turn out to be very useful in calculating this ground state. But okay. indeed, if you add sources and sinks, um, and this is a question I often pose whenever uh, I do a presentation on this. Like, what do you think the ground state is? And I haven't told them about the Vlasov equation or anything. Then, because then the right answer is indeed, well, it's the one with no particles, because <laughs> that has zero energy, and mm -hmm. the available energy is just the energy you started with. Right. Um, but that'd be then, yeah, that'd be a trivial, trivial answer, and you're not really learning much. Um, so somehow you need to constrain it. And uh, so far, this philosophy equation is working quite well. But would you would you be able to say that uh, effectively in this system, the source and sink 
would be just like the added source in sync would just be the opposite of the natural sync, which be, would be things leaving. Hmm. Although it's not treated that way per se in yeah. the equations, but like in a, if you wanted to translate this scenario to a physical, let's yeah, say yeah, open system. Say that's, yeah, so you could say something like maybe there are sources and sinks, but they exactly cancel each other out at each point in space. Uh, right. And then you'd ex effectively have a zero, um, yeah, zero somewhere. Um, okay. Something we didn't touch on is um, this, it's not only sources and sinks which affect this philosophy equation, it's also collisions. And with collisions, I literally mean two particles interacting with each other and they're feeling an effect from each other. We also mm. set that zero, which is even weirder when you think about it, right? Because fusion happens because of collisions. Um, but again, it so turns out that if you heat something up to 150 degrees Celsius, things whiz by each other at massive speeds, ridiculous speeds. Um, and it's, it's kind of like um, an asteroid passing through our solar system at ridiculous speeds. It, it doesn't really feel anything from the planets because it only has such a short time to interact with them. So it's like, poof, okay, well, I don't know what that was, but I don't really care. <laughs> uh, so it's effectively collisionless or, or the collisions yes. are so, so infrequent that uh, it can yes. be sort of treated as not there. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that's maybe the impo most important point. It's it's a matter of order of magnitudes, right? We have this distribution function effects, uh, which matter, and then a couple of order of magnitudes lower. You're like, oh, maybe collisions come into play now. But do I really care about if it's such a small effect? Eh, maybe not. Um, so I'd like to take a bit of a meander here, just a oh, minor yeah. one. It's still quite technical, but maybe more on vision rather than rather than the details. Um, so there's this idea that you're trying to optimize using codes, uh, calculating what in your case, the, the available energy would be and minimizing that. Um, there's sort of the other side of the fusion field, which is the experimental side, where people sort of optimize by you know, trial and error. They, they know their machine, they throw in some inputs, see what comes out, what plasmas are actually generated and through those trends, slowly reach an optimum. Yeah. Um, and there are probably pros and cons to either, but are there specifics about stellarators or how this geometry works that kind of excludes that sort of experimental optimization or can, well, it, can your work benefit also from having that in a yeah, sense? Yeah, so it, there, it, it is a back and forth. The main problem with indeed this experimental optimization in the space of all stellarators is that the space if, is exceedingly massive. So the moment you stick to a design, something like this, you have a five-fold symmetry here, meaning if I turn it by a fifth, uh, it looks the same. Um, and you're already pretty much set on what the shape of uh, the plasma is. You only have a very limited amount of knobs to turn. You can maybe make it a bit wonkier, or maybe a bit smoother and see what happens. But that's not really veering, uh, not really veering out of this very small part of your space of stellarators. You're still in this very small confined uh, regime, whereas you'd really want to see um, more of this massive sea. You want to see um, what the optimal shape is. Uh, maybe it's sixfold. If you want to build a sixfold reactor, oh, I need to uh, get another funding round of uh, a few billion. So that's that's a problem. Mm, but, I see. Okay. 
but it is a good question because um, in the end, my work and everyone's work um, uh, falls, what's the word, falls through the grace of, of, lives by the grace of, I forget the expression. If, if there is an experiment which shows me that um, the things I'm doing are not worthwhile, I'm screwed. That's it. Right. There's this, there's this thing called reality, right? Yes. <laughs> exactly. How dare so, you? <laughs> I, could, I, could be, I could be making the most pretty models, whatever that means, mm -hmm. and the, the best equations out there. Is if they don't tell me anything about real reactors, it doesn't, I'm not doing anything useful. But then uh, that, that, that begs the question, at least from, from my question to you is, do you see uh, an end goal or application of the work you're doing that is actually going to have, you know, yeah. maybe not, maybe not the, the greatest impact of all time, but you know, something tangible at the end. Yeah, yeah, so for sure. Um, so I, I like to think of codes and simulations as kind of a, a ground in between these two, uh, like the real experimental side and the theory side. Uh, why is that? Because you can run a code and see if it does the same thing as an experiment, and then you gain confidence that there is some kind of link between the two, right? Mm -hmm. That if I twist the knobs here, I expect something similar to come out here, and you do it, and indeed, oh, it looks kind of similar, you gain confidence in, the, in both. Um, and then on the theory side, you can not only compare it to um, experiments, but then also to simulations, because you know that they're going to match reality quite well. Um, so this is the first work uh, I've been doing, which is comparing against simulations of uh, different devices, this available energy. Um, and typically we, care, uh, we um, compare it against something called the heat flux. And the heat flux is like how quickly heat is leaving the plasma. Mm -hmm. um, so we've calculated the available energy uh, for, the, the, for this, this simulation, let's say. So it has some input parameters. We calculate the available energy from this input parameters and we let the simulation run. Uh, and we look at the heat flux, the heat flux on one axis, available energy on the other. And we see that they're really quite well correlated. Okay. Um, and these, these simulations, uh, they, they are benchmarked against real devices. So they even are uh, simulations of real devices, only with maybe some set of parameters which are not quite physically achievable. But mm -hmm. we've tested them enough to know that now, well, they should be very close to reality. And there we did indeed see that they're quite, clo quite closely matched. So I'd say that's like a good verification between theory and close to experiment, not quite there yet. The mm -hmm. next step would indeed be um, twofold, which is something like these devices, you can again, twist a bunch of knobs, maybe make it a bit smoother, uh, make it more jagged, who knows? Uh, and you could calculate what is the available energy for, these, uh, uh, for this configuration. And within this smaller subset of stellarators, so like shape is kind of fixed, but we can twist a few knobs. You could then try to find something which minimizes available energy. And if we then indeed see, oh, it's very stable and we now have a boring plasma, that'd be really more of an experimental verification. So you can go both way, uh, ways with this. Um, and the optimization route is of course, uh, just uh, let the optimization run and do a simulation of this new device. Cause that's how you first gain confidence, right? Before you spend your billions of, uh, 
euros, dollars, whatever on a new device. Let's just check if it uh, works in a simulation as well, because we have quite some confidence in that already. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I hope that kind of uh, answers the question. Like it's, no, absolutely, absolutely. It, it brings to the point that uh, you've already tested sort of this idea of minimizing available energy against, against known experiments, against known scenarios, and it shows correlations and gives you confidence that this methodology yeah. will have you know, tangible uh, conclusions, or at least, you know, goals that are conclusions at the end that can be used to optimize yeah. experiments. That's exactly. very, very good um, to hear, actually. So it's not simply just, you know, chasing dreams. <laughs> no, I so this was yeah. the most, um, maybe one of the most exciting parts of research so far, because mm -hmm. that was kind of the question that was lingering in the air. So I, I should always uh, stress, uh, so I'm a PhD student and you never work alone in the field of science. You almost never work alone. Mm -hmm. um, so this works, work builds on uh, previous work by uh, a professor called Per Hillander, who's at um, uh, Wendelstein 7X, which I already showed you a couple of times. Uh, and I'm working under supervision of uh, Josephine Pohl. Uh, so she, uh, she's also uh, seeing me work on this daily. Um, and the main question all three of us had is, is what we're doing useful? Because mm -hmm. we've had this idea of available energy, which is kind of just what I talked about um, in very uh, broad scopes. Uh, but we wanted to see, is it useful? Can we predict something like heat flux with it? And mm -hmm. if the answer would have been no, then I would have probably had a uh, much worse time uh, now. Or at uh, least a different project. <laughs> a different project, indeed. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's kind of like the risk of science, uh, right? I think it's also the fun of it. You, you really don't know beforehand what's going to come out of it. You have some ideas, and of course, you're pursuing goals which seem worthwhile. But you, you, could, uh, you could make a wrong bet. It, it happens. And I think, so, so far, again, you have to be very lucky. It seems that we had a good bet uh, here. Mm. Um, but we still have to implement it in optimizers and verify more against real experiments before you should say anything of this sort. Um, so I think the best statement I can make on this part is we have gained some confidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's as much as anyone can ask for. As you said, the science is very... Uh, risk heavy, uh, you know, it's sort of venturing into the unknown. You never know what you're going to find. And I guess this is a good segue um, because I would like to ask to you, someone who is sort of in the journey, starting the journey of the scientific process, what is your opinion about these sorts of uncertainties or risks in your, in your research and maybe the application or applicability of your research? Are these things that you think about, worry about, or oh, yes, do absolutely. you just, or is your character simply like, I like to try, who cares what <laughs> happens, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do think uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a risk lover, so I do, I do like to take on these projects. They're fun, but there is, of course, uh, the, <laughs> the fear of it just all breaking down, which would not be a good feeling at all. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, no, I, that's kind of the way of, of science in general, I think, uh, just maybe way generalizing here, but you take on these projects and they're a bust or they're a success and you don't know beforehand. And that's kind of the fun of it. You end up learning something either way. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that uh, I've seen so far, which I think uh, could be better is 
we, we do tend to have a bit of a bias towards success stories, right? Uh, which is, if you're going to publish results, if they're good, and they're going to be in a great journal, uh, most likely. Uh, but you may also get very shit results, <laughs> uh, which just tend to not work. And maybe they won't even get published. Uh, I, I do think that's uh, too bad, because one, it could stop other people from going down that path, because you've shown it to be not worthwhile. Um, and second, it's, it's just as big, big a part of the story as the success uh, uh, stories are, right? You, I think it'd be good to hear more about all the failures happening all around. Because I'll be honest, I've, I've been smashing my head against the wall since I started. And most of the things I tried went nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. But I did learn lots of things incrementally along the way. And that kind of snowballed into something where, oh, oh, maybe this works and that did end up working and you can iterate faster and faster because you have all this previous knowledge. Absolutely, um, I agree with your point entirely that we need to uh, not, not showcase in, in terms of like, you know, make a big show out of it, um, but at least communicate also the failures of, of different efforts, not to shame anybody, but just to say, Hey, by the way, we tried this and yeah. it was an interesting idea, or maybe we did it wrong. Maybe we used the wrong method or the wrong, uh, you know, calculations, the wrong equations. Um, but the idea stands, but it didn't work. And then maybe someone can then take that information and say, ah, but like they should have done this. Why don't I try it with this instead? And then it works, right? But if you never told anyone you tried in the first place, yeah, that's it gets right? lost, right? Completely. So I agree with you completely there. Uh, one of the questions I have is that uh, how, how do you think is the best way to actually communicate those, right? Is it simply you have to keep talking to everybody you know, or would you see a forum being useful for that kind of uh, discussion? <laughs> Great question, which I honestly don't know a good answer to. Um, In your opinion, what, yeah, what, do, yeah, what no. would you think is effective, right? Uh, I, honestly, it'd be nice to see. Well, it's not like failures don't get reported at all, of course. You do have, if, if there's much weight to uh, these experiments or different uh, things being tried, then it will get reported and it'll get published somewhere and you can read about it. Mm -hmm, but the, mm -hmm. I guess for each one of those, you can have 20 which were less uh, worthwhile, which don't get any attention and won't be published at all. Um, it'd be nice to just um, make it more of a standard to indeed either really publish this because it is. It it does add, I think, to uh, the community, uh, to to the knowledge of in general, that something isn't worthwhile, or indeed something like uh, just documented somewhere. We have archive these days, which is a great place to uh, put any research really. So if if it's if it's well documented research and you've done all of it, we we have more and more options available these days to actually get it out there. So. Maybe I'm I'm complaining about a point which is already slowly being solved. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's these sort of, not necessarily complaints, but these sorts of expressions yeah. of, of we would like this that also help to solve the problem, right? Because then 
people realize that, oh yeah, there are people talking about this, right? So we should try to solve it, <laughs> right? Um, which I'd is hard. I'd love to see it, like a, a, a title in a journal somewhere, which is like the utter failure of experiment X. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> great to read that instead of, uh, instead of it, it's always like all these titles are quite hopeful and technical, of course, as well. It's like uh, the relation between this and that. And we find indeed it is quite uh, well correlated. Uh, instead of well, we tried it and it's uh, it's it's utter shit. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very honest reporting, which would yes. actually be very nice in some cases, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, within limits, of course. I'm not condoning uh, an entire journal filled with cuss words only. <laughs> no, but like nor normally, these types titles like this may exist, but they're sort of parody parody articles or, yes, or some yeah, sort yeah. of in a parody journal. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. which is which is unfortunate because sometimes those titles are like when i read it i want to read this like i want to see exactly what they qual qualify as an utter yeah. failure right? uh, so oh, i um somebody i follow on twitter i forgot her name she's a famous uh dutch science communicator in mathematics okay um, she, uh, she had a small article in uh, the Volkskrant, I believe, uh, which was about um, a peer review round she was going through. Uh, and one of the reviewers said, I found it too enjoyable to read or something along those lines. Like it was <laughs> too, too easy, like it was a book or something. Ah, okay. Well, yeah, we wouldn't want people having, having reading uh, papers for fun who would do something <laughs> like that. Yeah, exactly. Like why, why make it readable when you can yeah, make it under, yeah. <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why publish it if you can read it? Well, yes. uh. <laughs> no, Jordan. No. It's illegible. Yeah, exactly. And then just random symbols and equations that are too long yes. for the page. That's also what we need. <laughs> Graphs with strange colors and no legends and no no titles. <laughs> Perfect. That's how I like my papers. Yeah, yeah. No, but if for indeed the sort of communication issues, uh, um, you know, we're joking, of course, with these sorts of things, but sometimes they do appear in that way in our articles so it is uh, yeah. important to make note of these facts and and yeah. slowly try to say hey um communication is actually the most important good results are of course great um meaningful results are better so they don't have to be successes but then communicating that properly you know what were the boundary conditions on this uh study what were the um assumptions being made during the study or the assumptions being made during the analysis yeah. these types of things i think don't normally well they do but less than we would want uh get placed into these articles um they sort of get washed away or sort of saying we followed this example or we this is standard in our in our analysis field but then it's not discussed. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I do agree with that. Like, I, I do think um, that, of course, the standard of practice is really high for all these uh, uh, to get published in, uh, in most journals. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you do need to be very precise, otherwise you'll get murdered in peer review, which is good. That's exactly what we want and should expect from, uh, from science. But uh, I, I do agree with that. Um, we tend to hide behind jargon often, um, which 
sometimes it's not great. I think I think plasma physics uh, is a bit of a sinner in this, with all our different words and um, terms which convey maybe almost the same thing, but uh, not quite. Um, for example, in Stellarators, uh, you have so many different types of devices, and we all have different kinds of names for them, uh, which is nice. It's kind of a shortcut, but sometimes it also it gets past the point you're trying to make because you're just hiding in that sea of jargon. Exactly, and people get lost on exactly the circumstances of what you're trying to develop your argument in, that they can't understand your conclusion and thus can't re provide a rebuttal, right? <laughs> it's like, if I don't understand it, then I just have to assume that you know you're what you're talking about because you're very well learned. And that's unfortunately not the right approach, in my opinion, uh, yeah, not yeah, the right course. approach at all. Indian flags all around uh, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, either way, so we're approaching about the time now. So thank you for this great discussion. Do you have anything personal or otherwise that you would like to promote in your work or personal life? <laughs> uh, so I thought of this for a bit. Uh, I don't have anything specific to promote in terms of do this or uh, side, side, my, uh, side my study. <laughs> wow, that's always something to promote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, um, so I'm, I'm going to do a weird one here. And I've, I've been reading a book uh, which I really love dearly. Um, it's uh, it's beautifully written. It's a sad book very much. Uh, and I just like to recommend it for anybody out there. It has nothing to do with science or with uh, uh, plasma physics in general. But it's a good book. It's called A Little Life. Uh, search for it online. I'm sure you'll find it. And that's all I wanted to contribute to, uh, to this part. <laughs> Great. Um, uh, what's, it, what's it about? Just yeah, yeah. a just little bit of a warning. It's about yeah. a group of four friends uh, who live in New York. I'm not going to spoil anything for the rest. It's also a hefty book. I think it's like 700 something pages. So you'll need to sit down really and uh, read it. But um, it, it is beautifully written and quite um, um, Touching is not the right word. Uh, heftig, um, severe. I'm, I'm unsure of. Uh, heavy. It's heavy. Heavy. Yeah, it's a heavy. Yeah. Thank you. That's. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Book. It's not light subject matter. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, okay. I was reading it uh, outside at a, a terrace somewhere because they were open. I was so thankful I brought sunglasses because, like, a few pages uh, further along, I had to like wipe away a few little tears. Oh wow! Okay, it's it's um, intense. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. But uh, so try to read it uh, not in a very public space, maybe. Uh, and if you do, bring along sunglasses. That's the other uh, uh, tip I wanted to give. Okay, great recommendation then. Uh, thank you for <laughs> thank you for your time. I guess. Ralph, uh, it's been a wonderful discussion. Honestly, there are so many more questions that I would love to ask you. Maybe we'll have you on again in the future because uh, you've been a great sport here. Yeah. So, um, Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Yes, and with that, so let's end uh, this edition, this episode of Coffee Breakdown. Thank you to everyone who is tuning in for listening and uh, keep tuned for the next episode.